we're wired to want. Over millions of years, these living organisms that we call our bodies have sustained themselves through desire. And that's the same reflex, you know, on a physiological level that's occurring when you look in the store and like the pair of jeans or like the new cell phone that you're thinking of buying. Learn how to make your dollars and your spirit grow with financial planner Brent Kessel next on Change Nation from First30Days.com. This Change Nation podcast is presented by City. City never sleeps. Wouldn't we all like to make a lot more money? And yet money seems to bring us all our share of pain and struggles. On the show today is Brent Kessel to share the content of his new book, It's Not About the Money. Brent has helped thousands achieve their financial goals, from single moms needing to put the kids through college to multimillionaires. And he's here with us today to help us look at money differently and give us his advice on the first 30 days of making more money. Brent, welcome to the show. Thanks. Nice to be with you. So your new book says it's not about the money. So what is it really about then? Well, it's really about knowing yourself uh, at the unconscious levels, the, the levels of our mind that react to money in unconscious ways that have been patterned for years and years or decades, actually. You know, what I've found in being a financial advisor is that so many people are stuck in a particular pattern with money, a particular relationship to it. They might be chronic overspenders. They might be persistent savers that just keep on accumulating more and more, even when they already have enough. But whatever our pattern is, it seems very difficult for human beings to change it. That's because of this unconscious, what I call a four-year-old runs your financial life, actually, is one of the subheads in the book. And, you know, the, the first 30 days really, in my view, is about knowing your money type, understanding how you got to be that way, and what the payoff is of the ways you've been behaving with money. Because until you know those three things, you really don't have much hope of creating lasting change. And we like lasting change here at the first 30 days. So let's talk about this concept of money type. So that I'm certainly curious about. How, how would anyone go ahead and, and understand that or, or see what theirs is? Well, you know, most of us have some kind of intuition of what our money type is just by looking at our current financial life. If you've got a plethora of, you know, financial assets and abundance of them, that gives you some clues that you're probably not a chronic pleasure seeker, someone who's always spending more than they have just to have, you know, sensory pleasure with money. And you're, you may be a caretaker, but you're probably not taking such good care of other people that you're running out of money at the end of the month. If, on the other hand, you are out of money um, or in chronic debt, then chances are something could be pleasure-seeking, could be caretaking, uh, could be empire-building and constantly throwing it all into your business, which hasn't paid off yet, that is leaving you in that scarcity kind of mode. So looking at your current life is is one way to get at it. Um, Another way to get at it is really tracing back to the earliest, most painful experiences you had around money. So these could be when you saw parents fight about money or when you were accused of being a rich snob at school because you had slightly nicer clothes or a nicer bike than one of your friends. And, you know, any of those experiences, and they can occur anywhere from kind of, you know, four or five years old up through our mid-20s, really form how we relate to money for the rest of our lives. We make agreements about it, about how it works and doesn't work, that then seem to run us unconsciously. So a four-year-old running our financial life, how do we 
grow that four-year-old up to being a, a fully conscious adult with, with better financial beliefs? That's the, the great million-dollar question. And, you know, what I would say is we don't so much grow it up as invite it into the conversation with the adult who's already here. So most of us already have a grown-up inside that's saying, God, you should be able to, you know, just have enough money and not constantly spend more than you make, or I should be able to be, you know, less of a saver. I know I already have enough. Why am I so compulsive about constantly being frugal and saving more? There's an adult in there that knows which way we have to go to create balance. What's missing is that that adult is usually having a very judgmental, almost punitive, condescending tone towards the four-year-old inside. And so, you know, I've had two four-year-olds, my own sons, and I, as any parent knows, if you try and just judge and condescend a four-year-old into the behavior you want, you're typically going to get a lot of pushback, and they'll usually get their way one way or another, <laughs> you know, through, through the back door. So really having a compassionate kind of conversation where you're trying to find out how does this serve you? You know, tell me, honestly, I really want to know how it serves you because I want to take care of your needs. I want you to feel safe. I want you to, you know, be getting what you want from your relationship to money. But we're going to do it in a more balanced way that's not as unconscious or reflexive as you've been used to doing it. So, Brent, I want to talk a practical example. So, I live here in New York City and I walk by shops on every street corner. Mm -hmm. um, I feel or am compelled to go into a store and would like to buy something that I don't yep. really need. Yep. So what's, what's the conversation I have with myself? Well, it really depends on, you know, if you want to spend less, if you've decided you want to change your relationship to money, and, and part of that change requires you not buying things you don't need. Because there's, you know, for some people, savers and empire builders and guardians, often they do need to spend more on their own pleasure because their imbalance is in the opposite direction. But let's just say for you, you know, you, you look around your closets and you're like, I've got just too much stuff and I want less stuff and I want to have more money and a little more flexibility to spend it on other things that I really value. That's really, you're coming into contact with what I call the wanting mind, which is the part of our mind that can never have enough. Uh, actually, a reporter once asked John D. Rockefeller, how much is enough? And his answer was just a little bit more. And it's like, that's the mantra of the wanting mind. So what you do as you're walking past the store is at least once a day, let a wanting impulse just pass by without you acting on it. And what will likely happen is there'll be some regret. There'll almost be a wave of grief or remorse that you didn't buy the thing you wanted. And that's because we're wired to want. Over millions of years, these living organisms that we call our bodies have sustained themselves through desire, whether it's to procreate or feed ourselves or house ourselves. And that's the same reflex, you know, on a physiological level that's occurring when you look in the store and like the pair of jeans or like the new cell phone that you're thinking of buying. And so just like when we don't get something that's essential to our survival, there's a, there's a strong emotional reaction. There's some fear that, you know, maybe we're not going to survive. Maybe we're not getting something that's, you know, truly essential to us. That's at the unconscious level. I mean, when you speak it concretely like this, it sounds absurd, but that's part of the healing is that you make these things conscious and you realize, you know, just how sort of imbalanced that unconscious voice has been. And how do your friends and, and family currently affect your relationship with money? I think they affect it tremendously. I mean, um, 
you know, most of us are the way we are with money because of our conditioning. So certainly our parents and the friends we had growing up, we either chose to rebel against them or to emulate them. And that really defined a lot of who we became in our relationship to money. Um, what most often happens in our adult lives is that we attract people whose money types are the opposite ones of us. So they're the ones that are most dormant in us. And the irony of that is that it's the one we, we most need to create balance, and yet we attract them and then we just fight like cats and dogs, you know, about, um, you know, how can you possibly want to just spend money on a car that's flashy that'll attract attention to you? That's insane. What you should really be doing is be at home crunching your numbers and understanding how much you earn and spend. So that, that would be a dialogue between the guardian and the star, for example. Do you think that's one of the reasons that money is at the root of so many failed marriages and relationships? I do. I think that the big reason for it is that what we believe unconsciously, what I call our money type, is so sacred to us that when someone violates us, it violates it, it's like they're violating us. It just, it really goes to the very primitive core of us. And so we often get caught in judging the decision, in judging the behaviors that they're exhibiting with money, rather than looking for the positive intention that's behind that behavior. So even if someone's a constant, you know, overspender on the most useless junk in the world, they're just buying stuff that's thrown away and they can't seem to stop themselves, there's a way in which there's a payoff to that behavior. And until you can uncover that payoff and validate it, really, you know, share with people how, you know, how you see that it's really giving you a great amount of joy, you know, to buy these foods or go to these you know, restaurants or plays or whatever it is that they're overspending on, there's not going to be no receptivity in them to hear the balancing message. Brent, there's a feeling I think that wanting more money sometimes makes us a bad person. Is that just a, a limiting belief that we need to sort of heal and unhook before it's possible to go make more money? You know, I think it depends on the depth of our craving. I, I asked many of the spiritual teachers that I talked to for this book. I, I talked to the Dalai Lama and Ramdas and Rabbi Harold Kushner, along with some financial experts and Nobel Prize winners, to kind of weave all of their spiritual and financial wisdom into the book. And, you know, the spiritual teachers surprised me because they all said wealth and having a lot of money in and of itself is not the problem. The problem is craving and attachment of what we think that more money will bring us. So I don't believe in sort of, you know, black and white labels of, you know, wanting money is an inherent sin, but it's really to look inside yourself and ask, what do I think the more money will bring me? And to really flush out that the wanting mind's voice about, well, if I had a million dollars, then I would be able to do this. Or, if I was retired, then I'd be able to do that. And you really flush out that then, what's the promise, and, and then really find out if it's true. So, for example, on the retirement example, try living just one week exactly the way you want to live it when you're retired and see how many of your problems actually do go away and how many are still there. And, you know, most people find that the wanting mind overpromises and underdelivers, which can take some of the wind out of the sails of that attachment or craving that so many of us feel. I'm curious about now what the Dalai Lama told you specifically about money and, and what we might learn from him. Well, I got to ask him one question, and I said, you know, why is it that Americans, rich and poor alike, struggle so much with money? And his answer was, you know, when you're struggling, 
looking outside yourself for the answers is nonsense. You need to read more, think more, look inward. And it's really this looking inward that has led me to uncover both the wanting mind and the unconscious core story with money or these eight money types. I'm, I'm a certified financial planner and have been advising people about money and managing hundreds of millions of dollars for many years. And all of the answers in my profession are external to us. So if you're struggling with money, you need to invest differently. You need to save more, spend less, change your insurance. It's all outside. And, you know, what I've found is that the people who really have the financial lives they want understand themselves on the inside first. The, they take their attention to why is it that I'm wanting this? Why is it that I'm resisting that? Why is this emotional reaction coming up in me in relationship to money right now? And they're, they're getting a deep understanding of that before they take external action, much like meditators and yogis do, which are the two paths of, that are most in my background. So Brent, what's interesting I find is I think there's a belief that many spiritual people are not wealthy and they do spend time in meditation and yoga. And that's not really where the wealth is, at least not in, in our society. And yet what I'm hearing is that there's a deep connection between becoming more spiritual and making more money. Mm -hmm. How do those reconcile? Well, I think that, you know, if, if you truly want to make more money and it's, and it's for an interconnected benefit, I mean, that's what's so interesting about the times we're living in is that the wealthiest people, Gates and Buffett and Oprah, are all setting examples of how extreme wealth really needs to be used for the greater good or it dissipates. I was actually talking to a consultant last week who works with mega wealthy families and they did a study that found that those families who weren't engaged in any kind of family philanthropy lost their wealth within one generation. Those that were perpetuated it. It kept going and going. You know, and part of that is taxes. The tax, the tax code favors philanthropy, but a much bigger part of it, in my view, is that when you're using money for the greater good, you're much less likely to get caught up in your own kind of neurotic behavior with money, um, whether it's spending on your own pleasure or hoarding it for yourself, for your future. Um, any of those kinds of neurotic behaviors that tend to make people, you know, do destructive things with money. I know one of the things you said in your book that I most enjoyed was that compassion and generosity are the cornerstones of a healthy relationship to money. Mm -hmm. At what point do those sort of actions start? Do they start for someone who is in debt? Do they start for someone who's still struggling with money for students? Or do they start when you start feeling at a place where you are now comfortable with money? They should start in, not well, I hate the word should, but they should, you know, if you really want to see yourself change your unconscious messaging around money, start them today. And you can be in tremendous amounts of debt and still give time and give energy and give expertise in some area that you're gifted in. And the reason that I say start today is that when we're giving, the unconscious mind is being told by our actions that I have enough. In fact, I have more than enough. So that counteracts the wanting mind, which constantly believes I can never have enough. And you know, if you really want to have enough, I mean, one of the things I write in the book is, is we get the financial life that our unconscious mind thinks we deserve. It really does manifest what it thinks we're capable of, entitled to. You know, it's almost like there's a nervous system attunement. And if our nervous system is attuned to scarcity, that's what will manifest. If it's attuned to abundance, that's what will manifest. 
So by starting to give in some way, whether it's just time or, you know, some small amount of money, whatever you can pull off, uh, and when I say what you can pull off, it should be a little uncomfortable for everybody, including my wealthiest clients. I try and encourage them to go beyond the comfort zone because when you're stretching and sort of forcing the saver and guardian within to feel a little bit threatened, a little bit uncomfortable, that's when you're actually creating you know, some balance and some real growth for yourself. If you do that, that unconscious messaging shifts to I do have enough. And then all of a sudden, it's, it's very hard to talk about, and it sounds too metaphysical, but I've seen it time and again. Money just starts flowing back to you from completely unexpected sources. I've certainly seen that sort of in, in myself and in, in people around me, so I agree wholeheartedly. Brent, any of the latest research on, on money and happiness? I think that's another one that we sometimes get caught up in, which is that the making the money will lead to more happiness. And sometimes when people do have more money, they actually become less happy. So why even go for it? Right. Um, I've seen both happen. Um, you know, there's some research that came out of Japan that did a, a study on people's self-ratings of their happiness from 1959 through 1989. And in 59, Japan was basically a third-world country. The per capita income was below $3,000. By 89, you know, they were the world superpower, really. And what they found was that subjective happiness hadn't changed at all. It was maybe it had grown about 3% um, over that entire period of time when wealth had grown much, much, much more than that. Part of that is that we tend to gauge our happiness based on how we're doing compared to others in our culture rather than just as some objective measure. But a very big part of it is that this wanting mind always wants more. And, you know, the only way to break that cycle is to get to know it better and to force it to be accountable for its promises. You know, when it says, I want, you know, to take a trip to Italy this summer. And you say, well, what will that bring you? And you really make it get, you know, very specific about, you know, it'll bring me this amount of pleasure. It'll bring me this amount of peace. It'll last for this long. It'll make my marriage that much happier because we will have had all this fun together. You kind of flush out all of those promises. And then you might, you might still do it. I'm not saying, therefore, you'll realize that it's empty and you won't do it. You might still do it. But as you do it, See how the actual experience compares to those promises. So it's almost like an audit. And you're just, you're just checking in very neutrally. You're not trying to find out a conclusion. Most often when I've done that, I've found that the things I most craved, that my wanting mind was most attached to, couldn't come close to delivering on the full you know, extent of its promises. Brent, what was the most surprising thing that you learned in researching the book and some of the amazing spiritual teachers that you mentioned you, you crossed paths with? Well, I mean, I think one of the very surprising things was that I, everybody can relate to these money types and that we're all really a combination of, you know, anywhere from one to three of them. It sort of surprised me that there was one model that could really encapsulate all of that. Another thing that surprised me was when I talked to people like John Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, or Dr. Harry Markowitz, Nobel Prize-winning economist, they all had first-hand experience with how much richer they felt from their giving activities and not just their intelligent investment activities or saving activities. So that level of, um, you know, kind of universality between the financial experts and the spiritual experts was surprising. And Brent, just for the people listening, for them to understand the financial types, including I know you have them in your book, 
um, how can they do that and what would you what would you advise well for those who don't have my book they can go to my website brentkessel.com and take a three-minute quiz and that will tell you your money types and then we've got a little learn more button you can click on and you know essentially do some exercises or activities over the subsequent week that will help you um, you know really create more balance in your life and certainly in reading the book there's over 50 exercises in the book so that's really where the wealth of the material is to help you create that balance once you know your dominant types another question I wanted to ask you earlier actually when you're talking about four-year-olds how should parents who are listening to this start teaching their kids about money well, there's, I do give some advice about that in the book. I mean, the, the number one way to teach is walk your talk. So your kids are probably going to either do what you do or do the exact opposite of what you do if they perceive it as creating a lot of unhappiness and suffering in you. Um, so the more balance you can create in your own life, the more likely they are to create balance and fulfillment in their lives. Um, one of the ways I do that is I give my kids allowance uh, equal to $1 per week per year of age. Um, and so my eight-year-old gets $8 a week, my five-year-old gets $5 a week, and then we split that into three jars, one for giving, one for saving, one for spending. And the last component of it is that at the end of each month, I give them an artificially high rate of interest. So when they were really young, it was 100% interest. I would double what was ever in savings and giving each month. Now it's 50% interest. And that, that gives kids a real sense of you know how much sort of more they could give and spend on themselves if they're willing to delay their gratification. Brent, on the savings bucket, I'm sure there's a lot of people who have questions about where to go and invest and what should we do with the money that we're saving nowadays when everything feels so uncertain for people. Yeah, I mean, I, there's three ready-to-go investment strategies in the book, and given that your website is the first 30 days, you can implement all of these in less than 30 days, and it'll really get people, you know, off and running to building something for their future or whatever their goals are. So, you know, I think the key thing is to start small. Like, don't just because you can only save $10 a week doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Um, it's really I, the analogy I like to use is if you're the captain of a super tanker, if you can turn the wheel one degree, six months from now you'll be in an entirely different hemisphere. And so it's just shifting slightly. And if you're saving just a tiny amount each week, make it automatic, first of all. David Bach, one of my colleagues and personal finance authors, you know, in all of his books about automatic saving, are, I think it's genius advice that what you can set up automatically means that your unconscious money type isn't going to sabotage you along the way. So make it automatic. You can use one of my three investment strategies. Um, everybody should first accumulate a three-month reserve even if you've got credit card debt, I like people to have a three-month reserve in savings that's equal to three months of what they spend each month. Because especially for archetypes like the innocent, that will kind of rewire their unconscious core story. Because um, they're looking at this bank balance of, you know, if they spend 4000 a month, they're looking at $12,000 in there, and they're saying, wow, that's what it feels like to have $12,000. Um, you know, and for many people, to get to that point might require really trimming back their lifestyle. So the key thing is not comparing yourself to the Joneses, but really looking at what gives you fulfillment. Brent, have you always had such a healthy relationship with money? No, certainly haven't. I mean, I was a, an excessive saver. I mean, to the culture, I probably looked like I had a healthy relationship to money because I've always saved a lot. But, you know, I, it was excessive. I was overly frugal, overly tight, especially in my early 20s and late teens. And, 
you know, I also had a, a period in my early 30s where my empire building and, and kind of guardianship, my excessive worry got the best of me. And I was much too anxious about money, you know, given what my actual financial circumstances were. That's part of what got me looking into what's at the root of all this. Brent, the way we end off all our interviews here on the show is to ask all of our experts the exact same three questions. And they're questions all about change in general. So they're not specific to money or your area of expertise. Yep. So here they are. The first one is, what is the belief that you personally go to during times of change and transition in your life? You know, I think it's mostly presence. I don't know that it's a belief. It's really, the, you know, it's, I'm in this moment. What am I feeling in this moment? Um, and allowing my feelings to be exactly what they are. Because often change is very upsetting and, you know, brings a lot of anxiety and desire for the familiar comforts, you know, kind of the old cravings. And if I really want to make change, I have to create a whole new kind of conversation around allowing difficult feelings to just be as they are. Here's the next one. Fill in this sentence. The best thing about change is... Oh, wow. Uh, the best thing about change is that you'll get to experience something new <laughs> that you have no idea what's coming. <laughs> and the last one is, what is the best change that you have ever made? The best change I've ever made was... Um, there's really two of them, but they're in the same theme. It was merging my money with my wife when we met, because um, we both came from families where the parents kept their money separate, and many people in California do these days, and merging my company with my business partner. I think giving up that level of sort of self-control over money, which was such a security blanket for me, really led to both a tremendous amount of wealth and a tremendous amount of trust and, and deepened connections in both of those relationships. So Brent, I've never asked a follow-on question to any expert, but now you've got me thinking. So merging your money with your wife, is that something that you advise to people getting married? It depends. If you're a caretaker, if you're someone who always takes better care of others than you do of yourself, and you tend to be enabling of others and self-abandoning, then I'd say no. Then I think the, the stretch for you, you know, would be to keep your money separate and to actually set that boundary. So it's all, my entire body of work is about, you know, what are your unconscious tendencies and what direction do you go in to create balance, which is why there's really no universal rules of thumb. Thank you, Brent, for making us all a little bit more enlightened about this uh, concept of money. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Brent Kessel on Change Nation. And for more information about him and his work and his book, it's not about the money. Please visit his website, www.brentkessel.com. And for more inspiring interviews and other change experts, please visit us at first30days.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Change Nation from first30days.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes in the Society and Culture section under Philosophy. Make sure you take time to leave us feedback about the show. We'd love to know what you think. Change Nation is a production of First30days.com. Copyright 2008. All rights reserved.